Marini's Media. Totally football show. Today, all or nothing, nation shocked as Kane curses. England are jacked up, it's now Grealish in. Nations League, big clash in Europe as the titans of San Marino aim to rock Gibraltar. And we'll chat Watford's young, blossoming talent. That's all coming up on this week's Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yes, that's right, listener. It's not Jimbo and this is not the Five Live Football Daily, but it is me, Emma Saunders, for today's show to take you through this week's footballing agenda. Alongside me to help me and you work it all out, we've got author of Do You Speak Football, Tom Williams. Hello. Hello, Emma. Hello. And I think we're going to be talking Wales later at your request, of course. Yes, it's Cats- actually in my contract uh, during <laughs> International Week. I, I insist on talking about Wales for at least half an hour. So that's something for everyone to look forward to. Okay, well, for now, can we get something in Welsh that you might be screaming at Ryan Giggs' team in the coming days? To my slight shame, despite being a proud Welshman, I'm not actually a fluent Welsh speaker, so I I had to ask some friends for help with this. Um, And I I don't think there's an abundance of shout-ready Welsh footy vocab going around. So the best that anyone could come up with was, come on, Cymru sort of like a, a splicing of English and Welsh there but if you but if you shout that with enough conviction I'm pretty sure you'd blend in you know without anyone spotting you come on Cymru right we're all on, on the edge Cymru. of our seats for your Wales preview later Tom thank you uh, why why have one bald man when you can have two back in from the cold having been exiled to the juniors he loves a cliche more than the next person so much so that he does a whole podcast about it it's Mr Football Cliches himself Adam Hurry. Hello, Emma. Yeah, that intro sort of um, got better as it went on. Thanks for that. Uh, Yes, detracting from that. What is your favourite football cliche? I've always wanted to ask you this. All things considered, I think it probably would be, if anything, Clive, he almost hit that too well because there are so many layers to that and it's, it's evergreen and people keep saying it without not really knowing what they actually mean, yet everyone who listens to it understands what it means. So it sums up everything I love about football cliches. And finally, someone who actually needs a barber, but who's yet to find one, having made a big transfer to Manchester himself. It's the Athletics, now Manchester United correspondent, Carl Anker. Hi, Carl. Hello. Um, So you've moved north, where it is notably colder. Is it turtleneck weather yet? Because you've got quite the collection, haven't you? It is indeed, but I left a lot of them in storage. So uh, this this weekend is my big sort of unveiling the vault to get into all my turtlenecks i'm looking forward to getting the uh, bright pink one out first that moves us on nicely to our big story of the week uh harry kane repeatedly saying the f word this is of course all or nothing the tottenham edition we've all binged it by now well the first three episodes anyway so what were your thoughts on the Mourinho show tom yeah, I found it very enjoyable. And I think, you know, the, the insight that you get into how Mourinho goes about trying to impose himself on the squad is very interesting because we know that's such a massive part of his management. And this being Mourinho, he was obviously more than happy to do it uh, in the full glare of the cameras. And I think what's coming out now that it's sort of done the rounds and is being picked apart on Twitter is that there are a few slightly curious moments, not least the one where Mourinho appears to react to uh, a couple of you know, pundits or whoever uh, on presumably Sky Sports News 
dissing him, but b- both of whom sound like actors, which is a slightly confusing and unexpected additional layer. But yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it. So what, why is that? Because you're right, it does sound like it's been dubbed. I suspect it's because there was genuine... Um, I, think that, I think that scene is probably a genuine scene, but for whatever reason, they probably weren't allowed to use whatever the TV footage it was, whether it was Sky Sports News or something else. But they, but they decided that Mourinho's reaction, you know, sort of glancing up at the screen and then getting up and swearing and switching the TV off was too good not to include. So I guess they just got a couple of voice actors to, um, <laughs> you know, to, to revoice those bits with, with the result that we've all seen. Well, on the subject of voiceovers, Adam, uh, as someone who indulges in the language of football, does Tom Hardy do it for you? There are always really strange choices for voiceovers for these sorts of things. Um, Tom Hardy doesn't strike me immediately as a football man. I I, I can't imagine him sort of sitting in a pub talking about football or in any context. But um, but this this is the sort of thing that happens. Uh, I can offer you for the official film of the European Championship 1998. It was Craig Charles who did the voiceover for the official film of that tournament. And it's really weird. It and looking back, it's really odd. So, um, so you, you can never you can never really predict who's going to be doing the voiceover for these for these things because it's always very odd. <laughs> I think what makes this so good as a documentary, certainly compared to the Man City version, which was all rather polished for my liking, it's quite rough round the edges, Carl. And Tottenham, I think, have been much more of an enigma than the likes of City. So it's quite fascinating just to make sense of a lot of the stuff you've seen go pear shaped there over the last season as Poch states as part of his first 30 second cameo at the top football is never two plus two equals four no it's never it it's remarkably paced these three episodes so obviously Pochettino is a, a blink and you'll miss him and it's immediately the Mourinho show and it's immediately Mourinho doing capital letters Jose Mourinho Sarah Shepard once observed that he speaks in a perfect cadence for journalists transcribing like everything about Jose Mourinho is maximised for 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 media consumption, and I've, you know you've already seen his likeness and clips being gifted and memed and and put onto social media, and uh, it, it does sort of build to the sort of conspiracy theory that uh, Mourinho was brought in not because he was you know still a very good manager because he's just box office in this sort of mm. very annoying way. I'm not learning anything about whether or not he's a good manager anymore. I am learning that. Well, one, it's quite surprising he is uh, so religious. Uh, and two, the very odd way he uh, swears. He swears beautifully, uh, I should say. His swearing is incredible. And I'll tell you why, because pick any swear word you, you like. He, he lingers on the first consonant yes. more, than, more than most people do. So it really kind of sort of, it, it, it's not so much spat out, as it kind of sort of just smoothly slides out of his mouth. And, it, and it's, it's the most sensual swearing I've ever heard. <laughs> and... Uh, on a kind of more important point, the problem with some of these documentaries is that for Spurs fans or people who know football quite well, you're worried going into these that you're not going to learn anything that you didn't know before because of the kind of access issue that you might have. So when you hear a manager swearing uh, as willy-nilly as this, you just think, well, this is something we'd never have been privy to before. So I'm grateful for that, at least. And he's actually a more convincing swearer than Harry Kane, despite the fact <laughs> he's you know, not swearing in his mother tongue, which is slightly surprising. That Harry Kane speech is very... Uh... Well, I'm worried about England Euro 2020 now. (laughs) Well, we could spend a long time on this, but the fun stuff's done, so let's talk England. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of The Athletic Podcast Network. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, take out a 30-day trial to see their unrivaled coverage of each and every Premier League club by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. 
Well, Gareth Southgate's England team are back in Nations League action this weekend and they're up against the mighty Iceland. And I certainly can't recall any history between these two teams. Well, if all or nothing's not for you, I have it on good authority from producer Abby that Eurovision, the story of Fire Saga, is not one to miss on Netflix. She'd 100% recommend it for complete and utter silliness. Speaking of which, there's been a few changes to the England team since it was announced, uh, notably Harry Maguire out. But let's discuss the incoming, shall we? So firstly, the obvious one, Jack Grealish, outraged that he wasn't included in the first place. Do you think he'll get a turn, Carl? Oh, yeah. I think this is definitely the big proving session for Jack Grealish. Uh, Southgate's been very vocal about why Grealish hasn't been in previous squads. Sort of, we don't, you know, explain he didn't really see Grealish playing in the position he plays for his club, but playing as more of this left-sided player. And obviously in that sort of hierarchy, he's behind the queue of Sterling and Sancho and whatnot. So I very much expect Grealish to get at least an hour to go, no, actually, I, I can do this job. I, I am the player that... I did show promise in, in you know, 2017 when I was playing around in the, uh, I want to say the under-21s. Tom, do you think on that note that he does fit Southgate's system? He's, he's versatile, which can be a good thing, but it also seems to go against him in a lot of senses. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it, it took all these players dropping out for Southgate to call him up suggests that Southgate isn't particularly convinced about his potential as an international footballer. But I think one thing that Grealish should address is the lack of creativity that England have in central areas, which has been a big theme um, of this England team uh, over the last sort of 12, 18 months. I mean, they were sensational in, in qualifying for Euro 2020. You almost forget it's been so long now, um, you know, 6-0 against Bulgaria, 7-0 against Montenegro, but nine goals past Kosovo. So you know, creativity and scoring goals obviously isn't a problem. But I think the, the biggest issue that Southgate still has to address is the composition of that midfield. You suspect that if everyone's fit, Jordan Henderson probably starts, but then who's going to be the holding player and who's going to be the slightly more creative player? And I think in certain matches, there's definitely scope for a player like Grealish being that more creative player. And he just has that that sort of you know, that edge to his game, that unpredictability that, you know, not, not too many English players have. So, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's there's definite scope for, for giving him a chance. But at the same time, I think he's going to have to do quite a lot to convince Southgate that, you know, he's, he's worthy of a starting place. Adam, there's also uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles who impressed in the Community Shield and Connor Cody, who's been solid for Wolves all year round. Do you agree with their inclusions? On Sunday's show, it was mentioned that this squad and what we might see next summer could look very different. Is it is it this break where you'll see the tables turning slightly in that sense? Um, I think Connor Cody is well overdue a call. I think in these modern times, centre-back is probably one of the sort of positions that England aren't producing a great deal of quality at the moment. So it's, it's worth Southgate kind of exploring every option. And you only hear ever hear good things about Connor Cody, the fact that he sort of plays every minute regardless of you know how many games Wolves are playing and that sort of thing so he's very durable and he's he's 
you know, he's a kind of a captain style figure. So he's an international player. Well, to, um, to the extent that he's worth trying in, in a situation like this. As for Ainsley Maitland-Niles, I don't see him in the Euro squad next summer. But again, he's a sort of player who, who it's worth trying. But to pick up on your point about Grealish, I do worry that he's the sort of player where his implied versatility will work against him when it comes to filling a a slot in a in a competition squad. So I'm not sure about his long-term credential, medium-term credentials, but he's certainly worth a try. Also on Connor Cody, an interesting twist on the uh, uncapped player reacts to call-up trope in that he didn't, that it, you, or, you know, ordinarily, as, as Adam has documented quite extensively, you assume that it's a wind-up um, from your teammates or your gaffer <laughs> or whatever. But on this occasion, it was when he told... His, was it his parents or his parents-in-law uh, and announced it in company of his partner and they the parents thought that uh, they were telling them that they were expecting another child and so got all excited and <laughs> oh, it was, no 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 it's 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 an England call up so they had to react in in a different way I thought that was going to be they thought that he was winding them up about his own international call up which is a little bit more poignant than the than the usual one because that makes it sound like his parents don't even think he's that good a footballer <laughs> so I'm kind of glad that that's how it turned out um, right, if we're looking at a starting lineup, then who's in goal, Carl? Oh, it's got to be Henderson. Please, just just get on with it. <laughs> if if England are going to bomb Pickford out, as I suspect a lot of England fans would probably like him to, this would be a convenient opportunity to do it because it is the start of a new season, the start of a new cycle. There are two other exceptional goalkeepers in the squad: Nick Pope, who was brilliant all season long for Burnley, just missed out on the Golden Glove. And yeah, Dean Henderson, who was fantastic at Sheffield United and is now challenging David De Gea for a starting place at, at Manchester United. But Southgate's been loyal to Pickford all along, so I, I would have thought he will probably start uh, at least one of these games. Yeah, he, he is loyal to Pickford and he's fiercely loyal to, to a lot of his squad, especially ones that have helped him qualify for tournaments and things. But I see Henderson's England trajectory mapped out already. He'll probably play in at least one of these two upcoming games and then fast forward maybe... 12 months and I can see him pounding the turf as England go out sort of semi-heroically from Euro 2020. So, um, yeah, it's, it's already mapped out. It doesn't really matter how good a goalkeeper is. It's his destiny is sealed. <laughs> all right. Well, if it's all mapped out, how do you see this going? Can we see a, uh, a repeat of 2016 on the cards, dare I say it? I suspect probably not, given that England's most recent form, albeit dating back to the end of last year, was was so good. Uh, you know, I think yeah, okay, there are there are um, gaps to be filled in in this team. There are a lot of notable absentees, but there's a dynamic there. There's a way of playing, and I think that forward line, even without Marcus Rashford, is is a guarantee of goals. Iceland missing a lot of a lot of their most important players for various reasons. Some of them COVID nineteen related. No Gilfie Sigurdsson, no Johan Berger Munson, no Aaron Gunnarsson, no Alfred Finn Boagsson and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I I can't see a, a repeat of that. Sadly. There is going to be a Space Jam too, but I doubt the Monstars will be getting involved in this game. And Adam, um, I just want to pick up on a, a point that was made by Tom there, the forward line. Do you think with Southgate's system, we're still looking at a 4-3-3? I think so. Um, it's it served him reasonably well over his time, and and it's it's very much the en vogue kind of system. And uh, the problem with international football is that you can't you can't tweak things too much because players don't get get together very often. It's it's one of the kind of fundamental inbuilt issues. I mean, assuming that he does stick with that system, you're looking at someone like Mason Greenwood, who who is perfectly designed uh, to play in a front three, and 
what I'm most excited about Greenwood is since we're so used to England wonder kids coming through over the last 20 years with kind of electric pace, but not much else. And that's all that excites us. He's, he's essentially the finished product already in many ways. So he's going to come in almost with this kind of brain of a, of a 25 year old. And, and I expect him to hit the ground running and I expect he will get some decent game time in at least one of the games. So that's England facing Iceland on Saturday uh, in Reykjavik. Kickoff for that one is 5pm. All right, Dave, how goes the car sales industry? Good, yeah. Sold a car to Ed Woodward last week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a 20 grand car, but I said I'd sell it to him for 30, and he came back and said he'd give me 25 plus another 10 grand based on performance. Ah, the silly season is upon us. The transfer window. And Paddy Power have got odds on all the transfer rumours on our football specials page, whether it's Messi to Man City or Ronaldo to Bristol City. And if it's not there, just tweet us using the hashtag WhatOddsPaddy. Paddy Power. 18plusbegumbleware.org. T's and C's apply. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Well, before England lace up their boots, there are a few other matches which catch the eye. And Carl, you stuck a highlighter around Germany-Spain. Yeah, Germany-Spain is one of the sneaky, fun rivalries of the 21st century. I think when you look at Euro 2008 and the World Cup 2010 and whatnot, Germany have had two or three times where they've tried to get past this Spain team and then Puyol bailed them out and then sort of... As things changed and the hierarchy shifted, Germany finally got their World Cup and Spain were sort of cast aside by the Netherlands, as we all sort of remember, pace and power have a role in international football as well. So I think this will be a very fun litmus test for two teams that will probably head into Euro 2020 wanting to be wanting to win the trophy. Two teams that haven't really done a lot in international football for a while and two teams that are in sort of halfway house in between the sort of do we want to take the approach that we did when we won World Cups or do we want to try and play this new slightly higher pressing style of football I think you're right Carly to me it's a very fresh looking international matchup I mean if you consider the kind of general fatigue we all have with international breaks and international football outside of major tournaments it's quite nice to see two big teams coming together that we don't really associate with each other I can't I can't picture Germany and Spain on the same pitch unless somebody's playing FIFA I just I I don't picture them in the same way and that was the same for say Germany and Brazil up right up until about 2014 and now that's now that's got the emotional baggage of of that World Cup and Germany and Spain don't seem to have that I don't really remember the final of 2008 I don't remember their World Cup semi-final in 2010 I certainly don't remember their two unremarkable friendly since then so it's nice in an international break that few people are actually looking forward to it seems to have two big teams playing each other that don't have that history I think it's one of the the positive things about the Nations League which as a concept baffled uh, an awful lot of people uh, and which I think a lot of us are still I'm still trying to you know get my head around the uh, sort of permutations for the last Nations League and here we are about to start the second one but the real triumph for the Nations League uh, in its first iteration was that it gave us these matches regularly you know matches between teams on the same sort of level we weren't watching completely meaningless qualifiers uh, between teams uh, you know of, of vastly different levels we were seeing matchups between teams who are you know roughly the same sort of level and that right across the board I don't get the impression there's enormous enthusiasm for these matches both sort of within football and and from from fans, but the fact that you've got all these, um, well, you know, you've you've certainly got a handful of quite appetising matchups. I think that should help to engage people, um, and you know, should make for some entertaining matches. So Ansu Fati uh, has his first senior call up in this game. But who are the key players then we should be looking out for, Carl? 
I mean, Luis Enrique said that if the Euros were played tomorrow, this would be his squad, which is slightly baffling, as I think there are maybe two or three players that are you know still waiting for. So Rodrigo, who's just played for Leeds, is one of those players where, well, I'm going to put him half in a, is he good or have I just not seen enough of him because he's not played in England yet? Fatih, I think, it's probably in that sort of nice, fun Michael Owen at an international tournament role when Michael Owen was young and we thought he watched films. Um, <laughs> with Germany, I think Germany are, are, are probably done really well. Just like Bayern Munich, they've sort of just reshuffled really well and, and just sort of moved on from their previous World Cup roles. Uh, I'm really excited to see if Leroy Sainz is going to play football again. Sadar from Schalke is going to be quite fun. Uh, and Timo Werner will be always really fun to watch for, for Premier League watching, watchers. Okay, so that game then, Germany-Spain, is on Thursday night. Tom, you like to spend your time perusing League 1, so no surprise, you've gone for the world champions to preview. Uh, They're going to be facing Sweden. That's Saturday, 7.45 kickoff. The likes of Mbappe in the squad, Tom, French football obviously stopped for the pandemic, unlike other countries. But do you think we'll see Deschamps select all those players who were in the Champions League final? Yeah, so he's actually left out some of the Bayern Munich players who were involved in that game. So there's no Benjamin Pavard, there's no Corentin Taliso, there's no Kingsley Coman. Uh, Lucas Hernandez is in the squad um, and he's quite keen for game time after missing most of last season. And where we find France now is that having, having basically stuck true to the team that won the World Cup throughout qualifying for the Euro, it looks like Deschamps is ready to start shuffling his pack a little bit more. Um, the only players who, who were able to break into that World Cup eleven during the qualifiers were Clement Longley, who uh, supplanted Samuel Mtiti uh, in, in central defence, and Kingsley Coleman, uh, who looked like he was in the process of taking Blaise Matuidi's place on the left of midfield. In France's last game, there's a qualifier away to Albania. They played with a back three wing-backs and uh, Antoine Griezmann in a sort of number 10 role behind two strikers, which is his absolute perfect position. And he ran the show, was really, really impressive. And the suggestion is that Deschamps is, is probably going to is going to test that again, either in this game against Sweden on Saturday or uh, against Croatia on Tuesday. And I think, it's a, I think it's a recognition from Deschamps that he needs to sort of try and bring a bit more tactical variety uh, to, to the team um, because as impressive as they were at the World Cup and as impressive as they were during qualifying, they're not really a team who get you on the edge of your seat. I mean, that's not something that Deschamps has ever lost much sleep over, but I think he's conscious that they could do with having different ways to um, to attack their opponents. In terms of potential debutants, you've got Dejo Meccano, who was so impressive uh, at the back for, for RB Leipzig in the Champions League. And also Eduardo Camavinga, this super exciting 17-year-old midfielder who's just really exploded onto the scene since making his debut for Rennes last season. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it feels like Deschamps is perhaps somewhat belatedly turning the page on the World Cup and sort of trying to take France to the next level. And we should get a first glimpse of that in this, this game against Sweden. Well, that's France quite comprehensively covered. But has anyone done their homework on Sweden? I don't know if I'm comforted or, or disgusted to see the likes of Seb Larsson still knocking around in the Sweden squad, 118 caps deep, 35 years old, still playing his football back in Sweden. Uh, John Guidetti still hanging around. Um, rightly or wrongly, I, I still I just I, I think of Sweden perennially as just quite a stale-looking squad, and uh, uh, compared to France, who whose strength and depth is vomitously good. I feel like Sweden still still having to play Seb Larsson or still having to pick Seb Larsson is makes me either quite sad or or quite warm inside. I haven't decided which. 
I, I find it quite reassuring. It's like when, you know, you wouldn't watch CSK Moscow for about 10 years and then they'd be drawn against the England team and the Berezutsky twins would still be at centre-back. You just think, oh, it's, <laughs> yes. actually, the it's world doesn't move it. all that quickly. You know, we're, we're not yeah. sort of in the middle of this dizzying rush of events. Some things do just remain as they are for a long time. And I guess you... And no one yeah, else in Sweden can take corners. It's, that's <laughs> oh, yeah, there you that. go. There you go. Um, but no, I mean, Sweden... Sweden were, were pretty decent in qualifying, qualified automatically behind Spain, almost beat Spain uh, when, when Spain came to Stockholm um, in qualifying. And actually, the last time they played France, they beat them thanks to a stoppage time halfway line strike by Ola Toivonen after a, an almighty boob by Hugo Lloris. So a little bit of recent history there. Well, let's fly through a couple of other biggies because not everyone, Adam, has gone for Gibraltar against San Marino, but we will get there. Listener, don't worry, we're not going to go through every single match. That would be insanity. And I would like to be asked back to do this again sometime. Uh, so, Carl, Denmark against Belgium, another you've picked out of the hat of international fixtures and another Saturday 7.45 kickoff, incidentally. Um, but first off, the hard-hitting questions, Danish pastry or moule frites? Danish pastry. I'm really sorry. I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> Adam, someone please tell me what the second one is. Muscle, muscles and chips, mate. Muscles. Oh, oh, hundred percent, one hundred percent muscles and chips. I think it depends on your mood, doesn't it? I'd, I'd be inclined to go mule frites, sort of evocation of of childhood holidays. But sometimes you do just want to nail a Danish pastry. So you just need a Danish know. pastry. At any, any point in time, every meal can be enhanced by having a Danish pastry on the side as a little sweetener. So. You yeah. can't dip your bread in Danish pastry, and that's the decider. <laughs> All right, Carl. Well, now we've uh, wet your appetite. You can wet ours. Give us the spiel on why you're going for this one. Because um, Roberto Martinez is the Belgium manager. Are we? Are we sure about that? Like, still, we're still pro- progressing with this. Sort of Belgium's strongest ever footballing generation. Not even caused by any mass sort of uh, change to academy systems or whatnot, but just a real sort of lightning in a bottle generation of Belgian footballers, really talented Belgian footballers, and they've given it to Roberto Martinez. They were okay in, in the in the World Cup in 2018. They sort of created this very bizarre schism in Brazilian football, where Brazilian football fans believe Tite to be a genius. So therefore, if Belgium defeated Brazil, then Roberto Martinez must be a genius. And then they kept watching Roberto Martinez going, "Oh no, wait, he's just bootleg Deschamps without." Anyway, um, so I think Belgium's going to be really interesting to see, especially now Vincent Kompany has formally retired from international football as well. Vertonghen, you know, obviously now at Benfica and what, and uh, Aldevar is still at Tottenham will sort of try and make up that mess, but they've still got weaknesses at left back and whatnot. And Hazard has an ankle injury and we'll see whether or not Roman Lukaku wants to keep playing football in this game. He, he tends to play on the right hand side for Belgium, which I think is probably the best role for him. Well, it'll be intriguing to see what becomes of this generation of both sets of players as the teams last met in 2000. Uh, they drew 2 all in a friendly game in Copenhagen. So no real recent history. Most onlookers will be regarding this as a Belgian win, but who should the Belgians be wary of in, in the Danish pack? It's Kirsten Poulsen from Leipzig. Leipzig striker, really, really good. I also think Thomas Delaney and Chris Eriksen are two of the best sort of attacking and, and box-to-box style midfielders you've got around there. And Hoiberg, who's just recently signed to Tottenham, I've watched them all season at Southampton. He, he's very good at winning the ball and giving it to someone more talented, which means Eriksen should not have to run as much. Uh, slight weaknesses uh, at centre-back, uh, Yannick Vestergaard, who also play for Southampton. He's six foot seven, but not very good at the air. But uh, Joachim Mahel from Genk, is right back. His nickname is uh, Forrest Gump 
for the fashion in which he uh, completes the bleep test during fitness training. If you're if you're six foot seven and not very good in the air, it's a bit of an oxymoron because you are you are in the air really the whole time. Aren't well, you? so he unfortunately had his growth spurt quite early on. No, he had his growth spurt quite late on, so he he didn't really have to figure out. He, he hasn't quite figured out everything. It's a very strange thing that uh, there's a good segment on it in a per second book in regards to when you have a growth spurt really, really quickly and you're like, oh God, now I'm six foot six. How do I learn how to jump? <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, does anyone else have anything they want to add? I, I, the only thing that would get me watching this game as, as star-studded as it is uh, is if they both wore their kits from Mexico 86. Well, go on then, Adam. Remind us what those kits were like. Denmark's, of course, is is like, is like an all-time top threeer. It's uh, it's the the Hummel kind of two-tone uh, sheen effect that everybody knows and loves. Belgium's a little bit more understated, but still very much uh, one of their best. So yeah, all things considered, it's very much the Mexico '86 kit classico for me. All right, Tom, your big moment is here. You are a proud Welshman. Of that, there is no doubt. So this is not a euphemism. Tell us all about Ryan Giggs's Welsh Dragon. Well, we we left Wales on a heady November night in Cardiff uh, at the tail end of last year, having just beaten Hungary 2-0, two goals from Aaron Ramsey, to qualify for Euro 2020, only the third major tournament Wales have qualified for. Um, and it felt like... It felt like a bit of a transformative moment for Ryan Giggs personally because he was quite a divisive appointment when he came in, famously uh, played in very few friendlies for Wales. He once went nine years during his playing career without playing in a single friendly match for Wales Um, and so had long-faced accusations that his heart wasn't really in it and, you know, his, his coaching credentials when he took the job weren't particularly impressive either. Uh, Wales got off to quite a patchy start in qualifying, a lot of draws, but then they sort of found a, a bit of rhythm towards the end of the campaign and finished with a bit of a flourish. There was a moment after the game and Giggs went onto the pitch to sort of uh, salute his players and, and applaud the crowd. And, and the, the fans started singing his name, which hadn't really happened before. And he looked, he looked quite emotional. He looked a little bit tearful. Um, and then, you know, in the press conference afterwards, he was sort of talking about it as, you know, one of the greatest moments of his career, which when you think about what he achieved as a player, you know, really sort of puts it into context. Yeah, and so you know we now we now pick up the thread with Wales with this you know this momentum that they managed to find at the end of last year still fresh in the memory. A lot of absentees though for this Finland game: um, Ashley Williams, Aaron Ramsey, David Brooks, uh, which is really unfortunate because he looked like he was going to be- become a key player for Wales. Had a lot of uh, injury problems last season. Barely played at Bournemouth and has picked up another ankle knock, I think, in a friendly against Benfica, so he's he's going to miss out. Uh, Aaron Ramsey, as ever, is a big miss for Wales. But, good news, Gareth Bale will get to play a game of football, which uh, will probably do him good. Um, I, su- I, mean, I yeah. suppose the question is, Tom, as well, is Ryan Giggs OK with that? Do you, do you think he'll be OK with the situation that he's not playing football regularly at Madrid, yet, you know, he can just wander on into into the Welsh starting lineup? Yeah, I mean, Giggs has spoken about it this week in a press conference and said that for him it's not an issue. You know, he knows what he's going to get from Bale. And I mean, you know, the one thing with Bale is that when he is he is fit, 
you know, he's he's super committed to playing for Wales. He he really enjoys playing for Wales, and it's obviously something that is hugely significant for him. So there are no questions in, in terms of his motivation. Obviously, you'd like him to be sharper uh, in terms of kind of match fitness, and it's the sort of thing if he has another season this season at Madrid, like he did last season, where he's just not playing, and it, you know he starts to look more ring, ring rusty when he turns up for Wales. Perhaps that will become an issue, but. Interestingly, towards the end of the qualifiers, he started playing out on the right wing again, which I think is probably his his best position. Uh, certainly for Wales, they brought Kiefer Moore into the team up front, and it gave Bale a bit more freedom to to get on the ball in wide areas. And it did look like the sort of more like the Gareth Bale of old. So yeah, for now, I think Giggs is 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 happy to pick him, even though he's not playing for Madrid. And because Wales don't, I mean, you know, Wales do have options, but they don't have many players of, of Bale's calibre um, for all the exciting young players who are coming through. So my suspicion is that as long as Bale is fit, he's going to keep getting picked. Um, and, he, you know, he still does the business for Wales. So, you know, from that perspective, there's no reason why Giggs, you know, should consider not, not picking him. Well, I guess the final thing left to say is, come on, Cymru, as you said at the top of the <laughs> oh, pod. Flawless, flawless pronunciation there. <laughs> Um, right, well, for any Scotland team fans that are concerned about us not discussing their side, the Totally Scottish Football Show covered Steve Clark's team in depth on this week's show. Uh, so search for that and you'll get the best insight onto what they're coming up against in Israel and the Czech Republic and not just chat about whether you can play Tierney and Robertson at the same time. Okay, Adam, well, here's your time to shine. The one we've all penciled in our diaries, Gibraltar against San Marino. What is the deal here? Is this the first time they've met? It feels like it should be a derby with a nickname. Uh, Yeah, especially right. Yeah, there's no love lost here. But I think um, they haven't played each other at football before. But in many ways, this kind of encapsulates the very spirit of the Nations League. As as kind of Tom pointed out earlier, this is sort of thing, the structure that brings teams together don't, don't... traditionally kind of play each other but the one of the points of the Nations League was that the so-called minnows of international football were going to get the chance to competitively play each other and get more value out of international football than just getting spanked precisely 6-0 by a top 20 nation every every three months which is a waste of time. San Marino were once this this huge curiosity. People people just oh we've got we've got to watch this match. We don't know what's going to happen. But even that novelty's kind of worn off. No one wants to see them get thrashed anymore. It's quite boring. But having said all that, as, as fresh as this as this supposed rivalry looks, uh, there is indeed no love lost here because the long Gibraltarian Samaranese rivalry goes way back. It goes back to the um, to the fifth ninth place playoffs of the Division C of the 2019 FIBA Basketball Under 16 European Championship. Of course FIBA uh, course. yes indeed oh do you want me to start that again I will start that again I, I refuse to mispronounce the governing body of basketball I'm going to start that again as fresh as this rivalry looks there is indeed no love lost here because the long Gibraltarian Samaranese rivalry goes way back all the way back to the fifth ninth place playoffs of Division C of the 2019 FIBA Basketball Under-16 European Championship, of course. And San Marino, I guess, will be out to avenge their 56-37 loss at the Feti Barova Arena in Tirana, Albania. This is a big deal. Uh, this is a big deal. <laughs> I wrote a piece um, last season about what it's like to support one of the world's worst international football teams. <laughs> And spoke to people who sort of traipse around Europe following teams like San Marino and Liechtenstein and Gibraltar. And it is, as you would expect, quite a joyless existence. But for, for fans of, of those countries, the Nations League has been an, an enormous game changer because they're now playing teams who they have a chance of beating. Um, you know, they're playing, they're playing competitive matches. And, you know, even teams at that level have to have some kind of ambition 
And previously, the only thing that they had to play for was just not getting spanked by everyone in a qualifying tournament or getting spanked by everyone, but getting spanked as sort of painlessly as possible. Whereas now there's potential if you have sort of a good generation of players or if you have a particularly influential coach come in, you know, you can, you can look at getting promoted from your Nations League group and, and there's, a, there's a feeling of momentum there. There's a feeling of progress. So, I mean, you know, we're not all going to be falling over ourselves, perhaps Adam aside, to watch Gibraltar against San Marino. Um, but I think globally it's a good thing for football that, that these teams are, are playing games that they've, you know, that, that in which there's something riding on the result for both of them. I think on a on a even more important point, this is a, this is a huge um, this is a huge fixture for fans of elevated terrain, because uh, Gibraltar of course have the rock, but uh, San Marino has the three peaks of Monte Titano, so they win, and if if they go ahead early doors, it's going to be a real mountain to climb for Gibraltar. Oh. All right. Oh. Well, uh, I think we've had that's, enough. That's there. why you wanted to do this segment, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's everything you could have ever wished to know about the upcoming Nations League and more. So let's get the odds on all those matches and more with Lee Price and Paddy Power. Happy new season, everyone. What's that? You're not as pumped as me? Oh, boo hiss. Well, I've got a way to whet your footballing appetite. The return of its best competition, the Nations League. You still there, hun? We's back in not with meaningless friendlies, oh no. Instead, England seek vengeance on Iceland in another UEFA-commissioned heavyweight bout on Saturday night. Or something like that. We think this fix should be quite one-sided. Hey, we've said that before. With Iceland priced at 10-1 to to win this game, the draw is as long as 4-1, to with England the overwhelming favourites at 1-4. to Before that, on Friday night, Scotland host Israel in a slightly more competitively priced game, but only just... Because believe it or not, Scotland are also odds on to win a game of football. Weird times indeed. Steve Clark's been at eight to eleven to win this one, with Israel priced at seven to two. Working back another night, Wales are five to four to beat Finland on Thursday, and their hosts twenty-one to ten to take that fixture. Republic of Ireland are also fancied in Bulgaria at thirteen to ten, while Northern Ireland are the only home nation not to kick off as favourites this week. They're twenty-three to ten to win in Romania. And you want to put all that together in a weird, kind of patriotic, kind of not accumulator of all five home nations winning this week, you get odds of around 35 to 1. All the best. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. T's and C's apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Still to come, we're going to smash the transfer record and other transfer window cliches. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. If you're not yet a subscriber, take out a 30-day trial right now by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. We mentioned the Totally Scottish Football Show is out with their latest offering from Fitbird. There's also a brand new season of the Offside Rule WSL edition, which is fresh for your listening. And there have been some serious moves in the women's game. Most recently, Penilla Harder heading to Chelsea. Uh, to find out why that's such a big deal, go to the Offside Rule WSL edition and have a listen. Adam, you have a podcast too, of course. Uh, so what's happening in the Football Clichés podcast this week? Uh- well, this week and next, we're going to attempt uh, to 
tell you what exactly what is going to happen in the 2020-21 Premier League season before it even kicked off. We're going to go month by month telling you uh, all the things that pretty much happen in every single Premier League season and that are guaranteed to happen again because that's just what happens in the Premier League. So, yeah, in minute detail, we're going to spoil the season for everyone before it's even begun. Okay, be sure not to miss that. Uh, Let's take a look at some of the transfers that are happening in and around the world of football. Uh, Carl, on the subject of podcasts, uh, you've got one about Manchester United. And I imagine there's a lot of talk about Donny van der Beek. On Sunday's Totally Football show, the panel were really questioning where he's going to fit in with Pogba and Fernandes already there in the midfield. Can you help us as our resident expert? Yes. Well, for starters, it's pronounced Donny van der Beek. So I Bake. wake up in the morning and I have a shaken van der Beek. Um, <laughs> he has a fantastic little fan song on Spotify called Udan Na van der Beek. And for the most part, I'm going to write something more in depth on him on the Athletic very shortly. But he is uh, similar in playing style to Gundogund or David Silva. He's a more of a mobile lockpick who plays more in the half turn than an all-out defensive midfielder. I think, looking at the big spreadsheets so far, that uh, Mr. Van der Beek will most likely be someone to rotate minutes with Bruno Fernandes rather than someone to play alongside him and Paul Pogba. Uh, if you can imagine sort of a halfway Dutch Thomas Muller mixed with a little bit of David Silva, then you're somewhere around there. A very smart player with his movement off the ball, but he might not be the defensive midfielder that Manchester United still probably need more, more than anyone else. I mean, one thing that United could do that hadn't really occurred to me when I was sort of talking about this on Monday's pod was that it, it gives Solskjaer the option of playing with a diamond midfield should he choose to. Uh, I guess you have Matic holding, you probably have Pogba and, and Van der Beek as the sort of lateral midfielders. And then Bruno Fernandes uh, as the number 10 if, you know, Greenwood needs a breather or, you know, Rashford needs to sit out a game or something. Um, so they're, they're, that's probably about the only way that I can conceive of all three uh, of those midfielders getting into the same team. Um, but, you know, but Solskjaer showed last season that he was, you know, keen to mix things up where possible. United played with a back three at times. This is potentially another another tactical string to the bow. But yeah, as Carl says, it, it's hard to envision too many scenarios where Van der Beek, Pogba and, and Bruno Fernandes are all in the same starting eleven. I think Van der Beek is more of a signing to say goodbye to the likes of Andreas Pereira and Jesse Lingard. As to and not before time. At, and when you, when you look at Solskjaer's substitution options, not one of his substitutes made one assist in the Premier League last season. I think Dan, Van der Beek will make four or five, such as his passing range. Um, yes, one to aid rather than to replace. Well, the expectation is that Hammers Rodriguez will be an Everton player, probably by the time this comes out. Ben White has signed a new long-term contract with Brighton, so ending any talk of him joining Leeds. That's going to be a huge blow to the newly promoted side, but great business from Brighton. Meanwhile, Arsenal have actually signed someone, and here to tell us all about Gabriel, it's Arsenal writer James McNicholas. Hello, James. Um, Or should we say hola? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you just called him Gabriel because his surname, second yes, name, is a, a nightmare to pronounce for an English person. I believe it's something like Magalhaes, but listen, that's the best I can muster. Okay, well, we'll keep it as Gabriel for now. Thank um, you. So another Brazilian has joined the Arsenal ranks, so that should be four, right, with Willian, Martinelli and David Luiz. So who is Gabriel and why is he such good news for Arsenal fans? 
Well, I think the main reason he's good news is that he's a centre-half. It's an area Arsenal have had weakness at for a long time. Not just a centre-half, a six-foot-three centre-half, a left-sided centre-half. I think he really is a really promising young player. In France last season, he was one of the best centre-backs. And if you look at Ligue 1 last year, the best young centre-halves, arguably, Gabriel and William Saliba, were right there among the cream of the crop. They're both going to be at Arsenal next season. And you look at those two, they have the physicality, the talent, the ability on the ball. They could really be the foundations of an Arsenal defence for the next five to ten years. I mean, it's optimistic thinking, but after so many defensive problems in the last few seasons at Arsenal, that's the big hope now for Arsenal fans. A long gone the days then of David Luiz-Rob Holding partnership? Well, I mean, certainly Rob Holding looks to be headed towards the exit. There's talk of a, a loan move to Newcastle. We understand that should still go ahead despite his participation in the Community Shield. David Luiz has got another 12 months remaining on his contract. And I think he will actually play a pretty significant role for Mikel Arteta this season. You know, he likes his ability on the ball. He likes some of his other sort of characteristics, the leadership he shows. Uh, but Arsenal's long-term plan clearly is to invest in Gabriel and in Saliba. And I think that's a transition we'll see take place probably over the course of the next season. You know, Arsenal have been playing with a back three under Arteta. Louise fits in quite well in that and it disguises some of his weaknesses. But I think over the next year or so, we'll see the team evolve to Arteta's preference, a back four. And in Gabriel and Saliba, you've got the centre-halves who probably can withstand playing in that system. Well, away from recruitment, the big story has been Aubameyang and whether he'll be sticking around or not signing a new contract. A lot of people out there on the Twitter sphere saying it's a done deal, but you are the man in the know. So what is the latest? <laughs> well, yeah, Arsenal have kept fans waiting a little bit. They they signed Gabriel a little while ago now, but there was a delay in making the announcement. The player was in quarantine and things like that. With Aubameyang, it feels a little similar. I mean, we know there is a huge desire on the club's part to keep him and they're prepared to push the boat out financially to do that. We know the player wants to stay. He's been incredibly impressed by Mikel Arteta and it looks like everything is in place for an agreement. I have to say it is not there yet, uh, despite the will on both sides for that to be the case. We are still waiting on you know, certain T's to be crossed and I's to be dotted. Hopefully we'll be able to break that news to you soon because it will be a massive relief for Arsenal fans. Aubameyang is so important and as long as there's that little element of doubt, as long as that contract is unsigned, there will be that anxiety among Arsenal fans and I can understand it because he's absolutely invaluable to them. And another question, Mark, what is the latest on the Martinez situation? Yeah, fascinating one because Arsenal find themselves with two very able goalkeepers who are the same age, Bernd Leno and Emi Martinez. But the difference between them, of course, is experience. And Bernd Leno has been a number one since he was very young, really, since his early 20s in the Bundesliga and now in the Premier League. Whereas Martinez has waited 10 years, really, at Arsenal for this opportunity. And he still only played 15 Premier League games today, which is nothing really compared to Leno. But he does look so assured. So it creates this problem of who is the number one and is the guy who loses out there going to be on the move. Now, my understanding is Arsenal still have enormous faith in Bernd Leno. You know, it's forgotten, but before his injury last season, he was incredibly impressive. I hear he's come back in looking in very good form in training. And when the Premier League season rolls around, I think they would be happy to return to playing Leno in that competition. That's a problem for Emi Martinez because having waited so long to be a number one, he's not going to want to relinquish that chance now. So with his stock at a premium at an all-time high, you know, potentially he might look to move on and it might be beneficial for Arsenal 
to sell him because Arsenal need cash if they want to invest, particularly in their midfield, and he could be a source of that cash. So I do think, as impressive as Martinez has been, uh, it's one to keep an eye on because when that Premier League starts with the first fixture against Fulham, if Martinez isn't in the team, I think he's probably going to be looking towards the exit. Okay, and any other moves that we should be expecting to happen at the Emirates before the window slams shut? Well, it's always busy at Arsenal and it's no change this summer. You know, even last night we saw stories broken on The Guardian and repeated by The Athletic that Hector Bellerin uh, is potentially on the move to Paris Saint-Germain. There's talks between PSG and Arsenal at a high level about a deal there and there's, you know, seems to be a degree of optimism on both sides. Uh, an accordance can be reached, uh, a deal that would see Arsenal get, you know, substantial return on a player they signed for almost nothing uh, and get PSG a right back who they really, really value. Um, for Arsenal as well, that might open an opportunity for Ainsley Maitland-Niles to play as the replacement right back because he seemed to be headed out the exit door to Wolves, now looks to be staying. Other cases to watch, I think Alex Lacazette is one to keep an eye on. He's got two years remaining on his current contract, like Emi Martinez. He's in a position where I don't think Arsenal are going to offer him an extension. And so, frankly, at this point, they have to consider a sale. Talk of interest from Juventus and also Atletico Madrid. That could be one to keep an eye on. And and there's still the situation of Matteo Ganduzzi to be resolved. You know, he was left out by Mikel Arteta for a protracted spell at the end of last season. I think there's maybe been a little bit less interest or interest at a lower level than Arsenal anticipated. And I think when Mikel Arteta said the other week, you know, we're thinking of reintegrating Ganduzzi, there's always a second chance. I think that was partly designed to sort of, you know, increase his transfer value before a sale. So another one to watch there. But it's going to be busy at Arsenal. I mentioned Rob Holding, Lucas Torreira could go. Effectively, they need to raise funds to sign the midfielders they need. So it's going to be a busy few weeks. So that's James McNicholas there, Arsenal writer from The Athletic. And now, shock, some of you may know that I'm a Watford fan. This wouldn't be a Totally Football Show pod without mentioning that. So we should talk a little bit about their remarkable transfer strategy after appointing Serbian coach Vladimir Ivic for his ability to play and develop younger players, the Hornets have signed 36-year-old Glenn Murray uh, on loan from Brighton. Absolutely one for the future there. Um, I don't know the answer to this. As a club employee, I shouldn't really speculate either. So just quickly to one of you three, what is the thinking here and where does this leave Mr. Watford, Troy Deeney? I think that's a shake and bake strike partnership right there. I think that's proper championship football. Glenn Murray, 15 goals a season. You heard it here first. Glenn Murray is, is a slam dunk of a he'll get us goals in the championship signing, uh, despite his advanced age. This is a tried and tested method of getting yourself back up to the top flight, getting getting a player who's happy to um, step down a level and bang in a few goals, and uh, he'll do so happily, I, I expect. Right then, is there anything else that has caught your attention in the world of football before we sign off for today? Well, hashtag breaking, uh, Michael Owen has announced on Twitter today that he has launched his own IPA beer, um, which is now for sale in China and Hong Kong. And this being Michael Owen, we can only assume that it's alcohol-free and uh, entirely flavourless. Um, but yeah, I didn't see that one coming. It reminded me that Gareth Bale has got his own ale, which you can purchase in his Cardiff Bar 11s. It's called Bale Ale. I was kind of hoping that he was just going to call it Bale. That might have been a bit too niche. 
Well, all this drink talking is thirsty work, so we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you to Tom, Carl, Adam, and to you, dear listener. You'll be pleased to know Jumbo will be back on Sunday with more from the Nations League pot of fun and a Premier League preview part one, which will begin too. So there's all that to look forward to. Until then, stay safe and hydrated. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.